0: The song we've just prayed is a a beautiful prayer asking the Lord to do a number of things. And I want to highlight two of the requests that the song we've just sung expressed to the Lord. It says, Keep thy flock, from sin defend us, seek us when we go astray. What a beautiful request. What a gracious request. And, And the third stanza of the song said, Thou hast promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to receive us, grace to cleanse and power to free. One of the areas where it is easy for us as Christians to go astray is the area of how we approach our sexuality. And this morning, we want to approach the theme of of God's design for our sexuality by reminding us of this grace that the Lord tells us and gives us through the song we have just sung, that the Lord promises to defend us and to keep us away as we need to, even from the lure of sin. And when we do find ourselves astray in sin, that the Lord assures us He will receive us if we come to Him, if we turn back to Him. And I pray that no matter what and how the sermon will, will find you this morning, that we start with this foundation, that if you have gone astray in the area of, of sexuality, that you would hear the mercy of God, that if you turn to the Lord, that the Lord will receive you. The Lord's grace will cleanse you. The Lord's grace will, is powerful to free uh, each and every one of us. So with that in mind, we want to approach the theme of God's design for sexuality. We began uh, last week our three-week topical sermon series on sexual purity by outlining last week why sexual immorality is a big deal. And we have seen from First Corinthians chapter 6 reasons why sexual immorality is a big deal. Uh, to think that sexual immorality has no consequences is to be deceived. The ultimate consequence is that those who continue the path of sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God and Paul also in in 1st Corinthians 6 also points out that sexual immorality is a big deal because of a biblical high view of our body for a Christian our body is a member of Christ for a Christian our body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit for a Christian, our body is not our own. For a Christian, our body is an instrument for the worship of God. And we are called to worship God in our body and with our body. And we do that, among other things, by not giving into sexual immorality. Now, all that was a review of, of last week of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 21. But the Apostle Paul, when he speaks about sexual purity, he does not finish his instruction to the Corinthian church, only on the negative note of what is forbidden. Paul closes his teaching on sexuality by encouraging Christians to get married and to enjoy sexual intimacy in their marriage relationship. So this morning, we want to look at, the, at, the, at God's design for sexuality. And encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 9. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 1 through 9. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the pews in front of you, um, you may find this passage on page number 955. Here's God's word for us this morning. Now concerning the manners about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another." To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you pray? Would you join me in prayer and asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear? Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the gift that you have given to us as your creation in sexuality. As we approach and seek to understand your design for sexuality, Father, help us to understand from Scripture how you have designed this gift to be lived out. We pray that you would guide us as we hear your word, open our hearts to hear well. And Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word this morning um, so that it would do much good to our souls in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray for his glory and honor. Amen. God's design for sexuality. For married couples and only for married couples, having sexual intimacy is a command from God. Are you surprised that the Bible has to command couples, married couples, to engage in sexual intimacy? You might wonder, why would the Bible need to command couples to have regular sexual intimacy? Here's a quote from one author. Two of the greatest challenges surrounding sexuality are convincing single Christians to abstain from sex and convincing convincing married Christians to enjoy sex. Sex within many marriages gets relegated to the back burner or becomes a huge source of conflict. Some couples deal deal with vast differences in sexual desire. Others battle guilt and shame from past sexual experiences. Still, others can't figure out how or why to make sex a priority in the midst of work and family demands. When you add health problems and poor communication, it's no wonder that sexual problems are often at the top of the list of conflicts within marriage. Some of you single brothers and sisters, you may wonder, you may be surprised to hear that sexual conflict or sexual related reasons are one of the top reasons for marriage conflict. You might think, if you're married, you like you should naturally just figure this out. But it is not, and therefore Scripture speaks and commands to husbands and wives how to think about their sexuality, even in marriage. In marriage, two spouses can approach their um, intimate life in very selfish ways, thus showing that even married couples may approach their sexuality with unbiblical attitudes, so the Apostle Paul takes time in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to teach positively about God's design for sexuality. But before we get to unpack this passage, we're going to look at a few other passages um, before we get to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, If you were to consider the the structure of the sermon, this is a topical sermon. Uh, We're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. We're going to land and finish at 1 Corinthians 7. But we're going to have three points in this message. And if you'd like to consider these points ahead of time, here they are. As we consider God's design for sexuality. Point number one, God's design for sexuality points us back to God. Points us back to God. Second, God designed sexual intimacy only for marriage. God designed sexual intimacy only for marriage. And we will see why. And third, sexual intimacy in marriage is about self-giving. Sexual intimacy in marriage is about self-giving. So let's consider these three points. God's design for sexuality points us back to God. The Bible begins by telling us that God is the creator of our sexuality. Do you know what is the first command God gave Adam and Eve? This is what we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, and here's the first command, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, the command to be fruitful and multiply is really a command to have sexual intimacy, and the outcome of that is the multiplication of the human race. Does it feel strange to you that the Bible's first command that God gives to humanity involves the act of physical intimacy? In other words, God is the creator of our sexuality, and God commands the first couple, Adam and Eve, to engage in sexual intimacy. Sometimes we read all the prohibitions in the Bible against sexual immorality, and there are many prohibitions. There are many. It's filled with them. But it's easy to conclude from from reading those prohibitions to conclude falsely that God is anti-pleasure or anti-sex. He's neither anti-pleasure nor anti-sex. He created us as sexual beings, and he commanded us, He commanded Adam and Eve in marriage, in their union, uh, to enjoy physical intimacy. As one author said, you simply cannot understand sex horizontally. Sex comes from God. And that's where we must begin our conversation, our consideration of God's design for sexuality. Sex comes from God, and it reflects something about God. What are the glimpses we get about God when we consider His design of making us in His image and likeness as sexual beings? A first glimpse about God that we learn by considering that God created us as sexual beings is that God's design for sexuality shows that He is a source of delight. That God is a God who creates pleasure. God is the creator of sexual pleasures. Friends, our capacity and delight in sexual intimacy is not our own man made creation. It is the way God created us. Friends, have you ever considered that God could have created us like plants with no sexual organs? Or no capacity for sexual delight. God could have just made us like plants. But he hasn't. He created every part of our bodies. Every one of them. And he, cre- and he filled our body with nerves all over the body. He created humanity with such a complex and beautiful um, experience of delight to show us what God is able to create when it comes to delight and pleasure because god created us with a capacity to experience delight and pleasure he is the source of pleasure and delight psalm sixteen eleven says in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore if you ever think that heaven is going to be boring oh friends here is, here's a, a picture that at God's right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. And we might say, well, how do we know how, how well God can create pleasure? Well, look at the way he created you and I, with a capacity for enjoying sexual delight. It's just a glimpse of the ability of God to create and have pleasure around him. Oh, friends, the delights and experiences of sexual intimacy are the design And the product of an an amazingly delightful God who has created humanity with the ability to enjoy glimpses of that delight here and now. A second glimpse of God that we get to see through the experience of, of sexual intimacy in marriage is that sexual intimacy in marriage points to the passionate relationship God wants to have with his people. Sexual intimacy in marriage points to the passionate relationship that God wants to have with his people. It's God created the, the sexual delights and passions between a husband and a wife in order to give us a concrete and physical taste of the kinds of passion and delight God wants to have towards his people for all eternity. Now you might wonder, where do I get that from? Here's a few passages. In the closing chapters of isaiah god gives his people a glimpse of the intense joy that god promises to have towards his people and the best picture god can get, comes up with to describe the intense future joy that he will have towards his people is to give them a picture is the following, Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The best picture God can give us to help us understand the intense joy and passion he has about uniting, being in fellowship with his people for all eternity, is to give us a picture of a bridegroom looking at his bride walking down the aisle, getting his eyes on her, fixing his eyes on her, and being intensely rejoicing over seeing her. Oh friends, God is a passionate God who has intense joy over his people. And the best way he can describe it is by taking on himself this picture of a bridegroom. As one, one author said, God created marriage. And designed us with deep romantic yearnings so that we would understand this fundamental truth. That everything you feel, the deep longing for connection, the desire to be one flesh with another, was built into you by God so that you would have a small taste of His heart for you. Of His desire for a relationship with you. His longing for union with you. And His great anticipation for the last day when we'll sit down together for the wedding feast. It's not the only time in the Bible when God describes himself as a bridegroom. When the people of God turn to idolatry, and they've done it so many times through the Old Testament, God described the deep pain of their idolatry through the deep pain of a couple experiencing sexual unfaithfulness. God gives very graphic pictures of Israel and Judah as these two sisters uh, this God describes them as two sisters who have been sexually unfaithful to their husband. Read Ezekiel 23 when you get home. Read Ezekiel 23. Write it down. Ezekiel 23. Where God describes his relationship to, to his people in terms of sexual love in marriage. And idolatry as being the unfaithfulness, the breaking of that. If he, more positively, Ephesians 5, and 23, a passage that Pastor Taylor read earlier. Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives, how they should relate to one another. Paul commands husbands to love their wives as their own bodies, to cherish and to nurture uh, our wives as our own bodies. And then he gives a comparison, and he says, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his, of his body. How are we members of the body of Christ? Paul gives a quote from Genesis two twenty-four, which speaks about the physical union of sexual intimacy. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis two twenty-four speaks about the physical union between a man and his wife. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, the, word, the, the 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 quote from Genesis 2, 24, which speaks about man and wife in, in their sexual intimacy, in their union together. Uh, Paul says this is actually talking about Christ and the church, points to Christ and the church. And the Bible ends with a picture of God's people as the bride of the Lamb. The joy of eternity is described to the picture of, of a marriage supper. So, friends. You see throughout the Bible, the beginning and the end, and throughout it, that God pictures himself as a bridegroom wanting to be united with his people as a bridegroom is united to his bride. As one pastor said, um, when the emotional and spiritual oneness are at their early, earthly best and a couple enters into the marriage bed celebrating their oneness with a delight of pleasuring each other, there is a tiny foretaste of the life to come. Because God created our sexuality to get a glimpse of what is to come. So the first point we consider is that our sexuality points us back to the God who is a source of delight. And who prepares an eternity of delight for his people. But the second thing we notice and we observe from the way scripture speaks about God's design for sexuality. Is that God designed sexual intimacy. Only for marriage. Only for marriage. In First Corinthians 7, the passage we read, Paul recognizes that some people have strong sexual desires. And there is nothing wrong with that. Paul is not shaming those who cannot control themselves in their sexual desires or in in having sexual desires. Paul is not shaming them. He says, Those who, who cannot put those desires aside, the biblical solution is to get married. The biblical solution is not to keep burning with those desires uh, but, or to have sex outside of marriage, but to get married. Uh, look at verse, uh, verse 2 in the passage we read, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And Paul repeats this point in verses 8 and 9. Uh, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, if our passions for sexual intimacy cannot be tamed, the only only channel for expressing them is marriage. Paul is not saying that if people burn with um, sexual passion, or if they face sexual temptations, they should find a soulmate and just move in and start trying it out uh, or live in cohabitation together. The only context for sexual intimacy is marriage. Now, why is marriage the only biblical context for sexual intimacy? For one, because of what marriage is, and because of what sexual intimacy accomplishes. A marriage is a lifelong covenant. It's the same language that we used and we read in our statement of faith earlier. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, which is made public so that the world knows that a man and a woman are committed to each other. Sexual intimacy works, according to God's design, only in the context of that lifelong covenant of marriage. That's the only context where we see sex, sex being natural and even natural commanded by God. To reserve sex for marriage may seem very unnatural these days to our society, but in God's design, engaging sex outside of marriage is to cheapen it and to distort God's design for sexuality. Uh, A young man asked um, Pastor John Piper the following question. He Asked a question on the Ask Pastor John podcast. If you don't know about it, I want to encourage you to look it up Ask Pastor John podcast. And one of the questions on that podcast was If sex is so natural and normal, then why do we resist our humanity and restrain sex until marriage? And Pastor Piper responded wisely We save sex for marriage precisely because it is natural and normal. And beautiful so that we can keep it that way so that it does not become common or sordid or manipulative or diseased and cheap but precious and personal and clean and sacred and he said you don't put fences around weeds you put fences around gardens you don't put out we don't put our dirty socks under lock and key in the hotel room, we put our rings and our wallet in the safe. Holding sex until marriage doesn't make it unnatural, it makes it priceless. Because marriage is a lifelong covenant, and because God designed sexual intimacy to be reserved only for marriage, it actually bestows great honor. It bestows great honor upon sex to keep it reserved only and exclusively for marriage. So God reserves sex for marriage because it is actually priceless. And the only natural habitat to, to engage in it is in the marriage covenant. But another reason why God designed sexual intimacy only for marriage is because of what sexual intimacy accomplishes. Not only what marriage is, but what sexual intimacy accomplishes. Sexual intimacy Creates a bond. Sexual intimacy creates a bond. The bond is not just physical, it is also emotional and spiritual. And we see a glimpse of that already in the earlier chapter, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, where Paul assumes that if a Christian were to have sex with a prostitute, he would be bonding together Christ to a prostitute. And such bonding should never, ever take place. This shows that the very act of sexual intimacy is powerful enough to create a bond. Sexual intimacy is not just a physical union. It's a union of the entire personality, of the entire personhood with another person. As one author put it, sex without marriage is like eating food without following it. I'm sorry, without swallowing it and tasting it. In physical intimacy, we don't just touch the other the way we touch food. We unite with the other in the way that food becomes part of our body. Sexual intimacy is powerful because it contributes to the bonding of the husband and the wife, or of the man and the woman. So when the Bible limits sexual intimacy only for marriage, It does not put down sex. It actually has a very high view of sex because sexual intimacy creates a bond and it should be only used on the condition of the covenant of marriage. And in the covenant of marriage, sexual intimacy reaffirms and deepens the bond of the covenant. As one pastor put it, God uses intimacy, the act of physical uh, unity, to build emotional and spiritual unity within the marriage. And if that act is carried out without a marriage, it distorts the way God designed sexual intimacy. One couple described sexual intimacy in their marriage to be like the oil in an engine. Now, do you think the woman thought of this illustration or the man? Um, This is a man speaking. He said, it's like an oil in an engine. Without it, so without sex in marriage... The friction between all the moving parts will burn out the motor. Without joyful, loving sex, the friction in a marriage will bring out anger, resentment, hardness, and disappointment. Friends, if you're married, when you are working on following God's design for sexuality in marriage, you are cultivating a deepening of your bonding. God designed sex to have the power to create a bond between people. And to reaffirm and to deepen that bond. And another reason, a third reason why God designed sexual intimacy only for marriage is because God intended to bring great delight to the marriage covenant and only to the marriage covenant. The only way to experience this delight is associated with a marriage covenant. And God wants to make sure that a covenant is delightful. And that there's no other way to experience that delight Apart from that covenant. There should be no sexual intimacy without marriage. Nor marriage without sexual intimacy. The covenant between two people. The uniting of two lives in marriage is not just a legal experience. It's not about just being faithful without delight. A joyless faithfulness is actually not the kind of faithfulness God designed husbands and wives to experience in prescribing and commanding sexual intimacy for married people the bible wants to make sure that we don't settle for a joyless delightless covenant union the union between a husband and a wife should take place at three levels emotional spiritual and physical and the physical act of sexual intimacy only works well where there is an emotional and spiritual closeness as well. Having sexual intimacy is never just a physical union. It's a union of our entire personalities. That's why when a relationship between a husband and a wife is bruised emotionally or spiritually, the very first place where those bruises show up is in their intimate life. It shows up in the in the way they approach physical intimacy. Now, an entire book of the Bible has been devoted to modeling and describing the affectionate pursuit of a woman for her husband. If you don't know which book of the Bible that is, um, I'll, I'll give you a glimpse, but you should read it. It's the Song of Solomon. Commentators think that that book is only about Christ and the church. It is about Christ and the church. But before it is about Christ and the church, it's about a woman and her husband. Because the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife are supposed to be a foretaste, a, a display of the relationship between Christ and the church. The Song of Solomon is filled with language of longings, of affections, of satisfaction, of delight, and of ecstasy that should take place in marriage within marriage, God designed sex to be a powerful delight. As one person said, the lack of sexual intimacy often demonstrates a lack of enthusiastic delight in your spouse. And friends, if that's the case in your marriage, be concerned about that. This is a problem that, must, that couples must protect against. A, a lack of, of enthusiasm, of enthusiastic delight for our spouses is not a good sign for a married couple. By withholding your body from your spouse in sexual intimacy, it not only reveals your own, perhaps, resentment or emotional bruises, but it also causes resentment and emotional bruises to the other partner. So God designed sexual intimacy only for marriage because sex is precious, because sex is powerful, and because it is a way by which God bestows great delight upon a lifelong covenant commitment of marriage. The great delights of sexual intimacy work well only inside that lifelong covenant of marriage. Outside of it, it creates great harm. Point number three. Point number three. Sexual intimacy is about self-giving. Now, the, the rest of this this point in particular, is more directed or primarily directed to husbands and wives. But single brothers and sisters, if the Lord calls you to be married in the future, uh, I hope that this would also serve you well. The world around you would tell you that sexual intimacy is all about yourself and your self-fulfillment. And even in marriage, this concept creeps in. But Paul, in, in chapter 7, lays down a key principle that sexual intimacy in marriage, even in marriage, is not about your self-fulfillment or your selfish desires, but it's about your self-giving. A self-giving of your body to your spouse. Look at verse 3. The husband should give his, to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the, the wife to her husband. In other words, the The husband's thinking about sexual intimacy is or should not be on what he gets from his wife in sexual intimacy, but what he gives to his wife. Likewise, the same for the wife. In sexual intimacy, the husband and the wife should focus not on what they get from each other, but on what they're giving to each other for the enjoyment of the other. So think of sexual intimacy as an act of giving yourself not as an act of getting. It's an act of serving your spouse, not an act of demanding to be served by your spouse. (laughs) This verse should never be used selfishly to make one's spouse satisfy one's desires. The text commands each spouse to take the initiative in giving their bodies to the other and prioritizing giving delight to the other, not In initiating the expectation for getting or demanding the delight from the other. Now, why are husbands and wives commanded to think about sexual intimacy as an act of giving and not of getting? Because of what verse 4 says. Look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, a husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this verse does not authorize a spouse to act authoritatively or abusively with their spouse. If you have to tell your spouse and read verse 4 as a way of making the other person to to give the allowance or acknowledge your authority over them, or over their bodies, you're reading this verse wrongly. This is not read, to be read for that purpose, to give ammunition to the husband or the wife, to tell the other, hey, your body is mine. There is, this verse starts with the word for. Did you, did, you, did you notice that? This verse starts with the word for, and that means that it's the reason for the command in, in verse 3. The command in verse 3 was to give, uh, for the husband to give his body to the wife, And vice versa. It was a command to give ourselves. And now here's a reason. Here's a foundation. Why should we give our bodies to our spouse? Because of what verse 4 says. It says that when we give our body to the other person, we're not giving them a favor. We're We're not treating them nicely. We are giving them what... We owe them what is already theirs. So that in the act of giving, we don't think that we're actually giving a favor. We're actually giving what God calls us to give and what God has given them, namely our bodies. Our bodies have been already given to them by the Lord. And therefore, in the act of giving, we're just affirming what God has already given our spouse, namely our body. So it's not about the authority to demand or it's not even about the idea of giving grudgingly or giving with with holding on with a tight fist. It's about giving freely because God has already made a transaction between the two spouses. He has given the body to each other, the other's body to each other. Friends, if in marriage you still believe that your body is your alone, you are approaching your marriage and your body with an unbiblical view. Now, remember in last week in chapter 6, um, Paul told them why they should not engage in sexual immorality. He said to them, because your body is not your own. Do you remember that? Don't engage in sexual immorality because your body is not your own. And in chapter 7, he says to couples, married couples, engage in sexual immorality, engage in sexual morality. In sexual intimacy, because your body is not your own. It's the same reason for both. Friends, many of the sexual problems in marriage are rooted in thinking that just because you're married, you can now think of your sexual intimacy selfishly. Marriage will not solve your selfishness problem. If you're selfish when you're single, you're going to be selfish when you're married. So don't assume that somehow, just because you are going to be able to get married, that somehow you're going to be able to enjoy sexual intimacy in a selfish way. The Bible prohibits that kind of approach of thinking about sexuality, even in marriage. When your primary agenda is to receive satisfaction, you're headed in the wrong direction, even if you're married. While sexual immorality is clearly breaking God's design for sexual intimacy, Another form of breaking God's design for sexual intimacy is to use it or withhold it selfishly within the marriage relationship. God gave us 1 Corinthians 7, as one pastor said. God gave us 1 Corinthians 7 because spouses needed to be taught that selflessness must govern the marriage bed. And serving each other is the path to deep joy and fulfillment. There are situations when a marriage relationship is so broken emotionally that at least one of the spouses is really struggling to give one's body to the other. And it's a very deeply painful experience, not necessarily physically, but emotionally. Friends, such pain should be addressed. The causes for such pain should be dealt with. I want to encourage, if anyone feels resemblance of that or has Forms of that difficulty, I want to encourage you to speak to a more mature Christian of the same gender as you and, and begin opening up and talking about the issues that cause that difficulty. Don't think that you are alone in experiencing sexual challenges in, even in your marriage relationship. The only exception that the Bible allows for withholding sexual intimacy from the spouse is is in the case of prayer. Have you considered what we see in this passage? The only exception that Paul allows for couples to withhold sexual intimacy is if they devote themselves to prayer. And even that for just a limited time. In other words, you, Paul is not saying if you just keep praying, the sexual drives will go away. No. No. Paul says, not even if you you commit yourself to prayer, even that should be for a limited time so that you may not be tempted. I've known couples in our church that have taken a fast from sexual intimacy in order to seek God in prayer over important issues in their lives. If you've never considered it, consider it. I think it's a biblical practice. But do it by mutual consent. Talk with each other. How long? Predetermine the time. And you, you, you devote yourself to prayer for a specific time. And, and, and part of that is, one, it could be just your lives, our lives can be so busy that even cultivating sexual intimacy gets easily crowded out. Uh, but again, this should be done for a predetermined time and with mutual consent. Don't you find it interesting that the Bible commands husbands and wives, husbands and wives, to guard their sexual life and not to be permanently neglecting it, not even by such godly substitutes as prayer. It's amazing. And for a married couple to engage regularly in sexual intimacy is a means of cultivating the emotional and the spiritual intimacy of their relationship. Friend, don't wait for emotional intimacy to be high before you give your body to the other. Sexual intimacy is a means of fostering the emotional and spiritual bonding. If you are married, do you view your act of physical intimacy as an act of serving your spouse? As an act of giving yourself to your spouse completely? If you do so, sexual intimacy is like a covenant renewal. It's a way of saying, I'm all yours. I'm holding nothing back. And when you approach sexual intimacy in marriage this way, you are physically renewing your covenant. Now, if you're not married and hoping to get married one day, don't assume that marriage will somehow legitimize your selfish desires for sexual intimacy. If if you approach singleness selfishly, you'll approach marriage selfishly. Marriage is not a license for selfishness. In marriage, such selfishness creates greater problems than in singleness because two people are affected whether single or married, consider that your body is not your own, that you do not belong to yourself, and that you are called to give your body, to give all that you are, all that you have. And in this sense, dear friends, we are actually portraying the gospel. We're actually portraying the relationship between Christ and the church. It is even in the act of physical union that is selflessly giving ourselves is that we get a glimpse of, of, the, of, the, of the God who gave His Son, And the son who gave his body to be broken, to be given completely for the redemption, for the benefit of of the ones he came to die for. Oh, friends, even sexual union within marriage, and especially that act, is a portray of what Christ has done for the church, to give himself fully so that through self-giving, Christ could actually redeem the other. Oh, friends, if you're not a Christian Christian, I know most of this com- most of the sermon was so much talking about sex and and physical intimacy but it all points to the design God had that a marriage relationship a union between a wife and a husband should portray the desires that God has for his people. And if you've never repented or trusted in Christ if you perhaps have thought that that the Christian experience is a is a is a joyless or or sober or or very Boring experience. Friends, God is a God of delight and he calls you to experience an eternal delight with him forever. But the only way you can be made part of that delight is if you repent of your sin, trust in Christ, follow the one who has given himself fully, crucified on a cross, rose on the third day from the grave, was raised up to the Father and will come back again. Friends, our God is a delightful God. There is even a book out there called Delighting in the Trinity. If you have not read it, I encourage you to read it. It's not about sexuality by any means. It's about the fact that God is a God in whom we can delight in. And our sexual experience when lived out the way God designed it is a pointer to the magnificent delight that God is. I pray that we would grow in delighting in the Lord as we consider God's design for our sexuality. May the Lord help us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have created us to be such, such a beautiful creation with such abilities for experiencing delight and pleasure. Father, help us to pursue those based on the design that you have created for us to experience. Father, forgive us when we have taken your design and distorted it and used it in ways that you have commanded us not to. Father, also forgive us when we have failed to use our sexuality in the ways that you have commanded us to use it, and we have withheld it. We have not acted in the way you have actually called us to delight in it. Father, we pray that you would help us as a congregation, help the marriages of this church to grow in understanding your biblical design for sexuality. Father, we pray that you would bless the single Christians in this congregation, that as they battle sexual temptation or a specific set of yearnings, Father, I pray that you would help them stay pure and reserve and and keep sexuality for the context that you have designed it to be. And I pray that you would would minister to every one of us, no matter how broken we have been in the past. Father, we pray that you would restore, restore us, that you would heal us, that you would enable us to follow you and experience even our sexuality in the way that you have designed it to be, in the way that we glorify you, in a way that we show to each other and to the whole world that we do not belong to ourselves, but that we, our bodies, belong to you. We pray all this for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.